Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Wednesday, December 21st, 2022, the shortest day of the year and the end of week 43 of the Russia-Ukraine War. It's been 3,220 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 301 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine war update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Some quick housekeeping. We'd like to remind our listeners that our team will be taking a well-deserved break for a few days in December and January, so we will not be publishing new episodes on December 25th or 26th, nor on December 31st or January 1st, and we will be focusing on special reports in the first week of January. Our full situation reports and regular update podcasts will start up for 2023 on January 11th. Of course, if there are any major developments during that time, We'll jump in with coverage and analysis. With that out of the way, let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, while weather-dependent, we maintain the possibility of Russia, Ukraine, or both launching significant offensive operations on New Year's Day or January 7, 2023, which is Orthodox Christmas. Second, we maintain that the commander of all Russian forces in Ukraine, Army General Sergei Sorovyakin, is under increasing pressure to create progress in January 2023, with it nearly impossible to create a political victory on the battlefield before New Year's. Third, we maintain that Russia is still conducting stealth mobilization, and it is almost certain that the second wave of partial mobilization will begin in January or February 2023, despite Kremlin denials. Fourth, despite increasing rhetoric, We maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine has diminished further and is now a remote possibility during the winter months. Fifth, we maintain that terror attacks will continue on civilians and civilian infrastructure and assess an elevated risk of attacks through January 7, 2023. Sixth, we maintain Russia will not stop until the Ukrainian electrical grid and natural gas network are completely destroyed or Russia's supply of missiles and drones is exhausted. Seventh, we maintain that a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction is possible. Eighth, we assess that Russian President Vladimir Putin is facing more unrest outside the Kremlin with continued criticism from the Milblogger community and recent actions to create a narrative that he is a strong leader while shifting blame to the Ministry of Defense for the floundering special military operation. Ninth, 
We maintain that Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu is reaching a point where his continued leadership of the Russian Federation Armed Forces is at risk, and that it will be politically difficult to blame Army General Sudovyakin, commander-in-chief of the Special Military Operation, for continued failures in Ukraine. Tenth, we maintain that neither belligerent will enter an operational pause over the winter. Eleventh, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations. Twelfth, we maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin to be combat effective due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. And finally, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. There were some changes in the region, with Ukrainian forces making notable territorial gains on both the Svatova and Kremina axes. On the Svatova axis, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported successfully defending the settlement of Pidkuyachansk, five kilometers southeast of Novoselivske. In our assessment, Ukrainian forces advanced south on the P-7 highway, breaking through Russian defensive positions in Novoselivske and Kuzimivka, and moving Krivoshyivka to contested status. We reached this conclusion because mercenaries with Vorgonzo reported a failed Russian attack on Stelmachivka. If our assessment is accurate, this will relieve pressure on Stelmachivka and will require Russian troops to protect their northern and rear flank on the P-7 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line. Ukrainian forces are now 11 kilometers away from the center of Svatova. On the Kremina axis, Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported Ukrainian positions in Ploshanko were shelled. Wargonzo reported a Russian counterattack in Chervonopopivka, but did not provide information on the outcome of said attack. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces defended their position in Dibrova, southwest of Kremina, while the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, reported, quote, Artillery fire inflicted a defeat on the units of the armed forces of Ukraine, concentrated in the areas of Chervonaya Dibrova, end quote, confirming that Ukrainian forces have regained military control of the village. Governor Haidai reported that Ukrainian forces are still, quote, a few kilometers from Kremina, end quote, with progress slowed due to the extensive minefields on the outskirts of the settlement. A video recorded on December 17th was released, showing Ukrainian forces operating in the Serebriansky forest area unopposed. On the Lysychansk axis, Russian forces continued attempts to advance deeper into Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, without success. There have been no reports of the private military company or PMC Wagner Group fighting in this area for almost a week, indicating that the Russian offensive effort to recapture the settlement has reached a culmination point. On the Popazna axis, the Russian MOD claimed that a Ukrainian DRG unit was neutralized in Rozovka. The tiny village is on the secondary road Russia uses as a G-lock to the Bakhmut axis and runs parallel to the T-504 highway. The village is 20 kilometers behind the line of conflict. Governor Haidai reported motor fuel shortages in the so-called Luhansk People's Republic, 
causing issues with military operations and increasing frustration among the residents in the occupied territories. Some assessment here. The gains north of Svatova are significant, and the shorter distance to reach Pidkuyachansk would be from Novoselivsk. Significantly colder weather has improved ground conditions, enabling both belligerents to maneuver more effectively. It's unclear at the time of recording, with the intelligence available, if Ukrainian forces can hold this position and capitalize on the tactical advance. In northeast Donetsk, there continue to be significant information gaps about the situation. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Ukrainian troops in Bakhmut and declared that the city was, quote, liberated, somewhat overstating the situation. While it is accurate that Russian forces have been pushed out of the community of Bakhmut, Russian forces remain on the very edges and in significant areas of the Hromada. On the day of his visit, shelling of the city wounded five civilians. This is not the first time Zelensky has visited the front. In June, he traveled to Lysychansk twice under even more challenging security conditions. On the Lysychansk axis of northeast Donetsk, Russian and Ukrainian sources reported another failed attempt by Russian troops to advance into the eastern part of Verkhnokomyanskia. Russian forces also attempted another advance on Vesele from Yakovlivka that failed and ultimately impacted the Solidar axis. Russian forces did not keep a sufficient reserve force in Yakovlivka to hold defensive lines for their failed advance on Vesele, so not only were Russian troops pushed back, but Ukrainian forces were able to re-establish defensive positions in the northeastern part of the settlement. Based on the report from the GSAFU, we consider Yakovlivka contested. Some assessment? Russian forces and private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, are exhausting their combat strength in endless attacks heavily dependent on poorly trained and equipped light infantry. Our assessments were accurate that PMC Wagner Group is spread too thin, Penal units supported by the LNR and Donetsk People's Republic or DNR separatists are combat ineffective, and Ukraine fought to take back parts of Yakovlivka on December 19th. Unlike in June during the siege of Severodonetsk, Russian forces currently do not have an overwhelming artillery advantage. Ukrainian sources reported that the overall operational tempo with Russian forces was lighter and with less artillery support. The destruction of the Russian ammunition depot in Irmino, in Luhansk, on the T-504 highway G-lock to Bakhmut, is likely contributing to the reduction and complaints by PMC Wagner and Russian troops of an artillery shortage. There were no reports of significant fighting in Solidar, while Ukrainian forces effectively defended the central part of Bakhmutska. On the Bakhmut axis, Mercenaries with Rybar claimed that PMC Wagner is advancing in eastern Bakhmut, quote, district by district. In our assessment, the claim is outright false. Intense skirmishes with PMC Wagner penal units of company size or smaller continued east and southeast of the city. Fighting continued southeast of Pithorodne along the T-1302 and M-3, or E-40, highway interchange, with no change in the situation. There was universal agreement there was intense fighting on the edges of Opitne, with Ukrainian forces holding recaptured territory. South of Bakhmut, Rybar made an unsubstantiated claim that, quote, advance forces had reached the eastern parts of Klishivka. We are very skeptical of the report, which was not echoed by any other source. 
Warganzo reported that PMC Wagner attacked, quote, from Kurdyumivka and had, quote, some success. It's unlikely that Russian forces advanced west across the canal. More likely, they pushed north into Zelenopilia, where Ukrainian forces had a toehold, or moved north toward Andreevka on the kurdyumivka klishivka road. In southwest Donetsk on the Avdiivka axis, elements of the 1st Army Corps attempted a direct assault on Avdiivka from Kashtanova that was unsuccessful. South of Avdiivka, the GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces successfully repelled an attack in Vodyana the day after the Russian MOD reported fighting in the same settlement. The GSAFU also reported that Ukrainian forces repelled an attack on their positions in Pisky. We coded the settlement as contested and adjusted the map to show the northwest corner back under Ukrainian control. It is unclear if Ukrainian forces were able to recapture the E-50 highway strongpoint between Pisky and Pervomaisky. Elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR continued their attempts to advance on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelske and continued to be unsuccessful. Ukrainian and Russian sources reported continued fighting in the center of Marinka. Russian sources claim, quote, slow progress is being made, while video evidence we've analyzed over the last two days indicates that the slow progress is boldly going backward. You know how it goes. One step forward, two steps back, another two steps back. On the Vuladar axis, the 1st Army Corps of the DNR is approaching eight years of taking a loss east of Novomikhailivka with another failed advance. A Russian source claimed Ukrainian forces attacked Volodymyrivka again and that Ukrainian DRG units were operating in Mikilsky. This region may be getting more heated. This region may be getting more heated, with the GSAFU reporting a failed Russian attack on Prechistivka and heavy shelling of Vremivka and Velika Novosilka. The Russian MOD reported that Ukrainian forces attempted another unsuccessful advance in the Novosilka area on the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border. The People's Militia of the DNR Telegram Channel continues to claim they're destroying every self-propelled howitzer or SPG in Ukraine. Today's report is close to believable, claiming DNR forces destroyed one main battle tank, one Polish AHS Krab SPG, one M777 155mm towed howitzer, and six, quote, units of armored and automotive vehicles. DNR military leaders have not repeated the claims of the self-declared leader of the DNR, Denis Pushlin, that Marenka was captured, nor taken credit for shooting down a Ukrainian Mi-8 helicopter near Pervomaisky. Ukrainian forces carried out 234 fire missions on the occupied territories. The occupied city of Korlivka was shelled, and DNR officials claimed that artillery shells struck the Michurinsk penal colony. The E-50 highway G-lock between Horlivka and Matyivka was reopened a day after it was closed due to intense shelling. Shelling of the western districts of occupied Donetsk continued throughout the day. The closed Petrovsky mine complex on the western edge of Donetsk was shelled. It's used as a firebase and area for Russian troop deployments to Marinka. Residents in Donetsk continue to complain about and document bomb shelters and entrances to apartment alcoves that are locked. Despite assurances from self-declared DNR leader Pushilin, the problem had been addressed. In Russian-occupied Mariupol, the DK Metalurkiv building was set on fire, 
and due to a lack of water, continued to burn uncontrolled 24 hours later. Students in the seventh grade set the fire as an act of insurgency, and they were taken into custody by Russian administrators. Quick sidebar, seventh graders in Ukraine are 12 and 13 years old. Just putting that in your brain. During a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin, self-declared DNR leader Pushilin claims he discussed the hours-long wait at Russian border crossings and requested the creation of more checkpoints. For the alleged Russians of the illegally annexed DNR, Russian District 180, according to license plates, to enter into Russia. Other Russia. At the Uspenka crossing, tempers are flaring due to waits lasting up to 10 hours, with no access to food, water, or bathrooms. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. There was once again mutual shelling on the west and east banks of the Dnipro, with a significant increase in strikes from yesterday. Russian forces conducted 71 fire missions on Free Ukraine, killing one and wounding six. Russian forces shelled the Kherson State University, setting a gas pipeline on fire and heavily damaging a dormitory, and continued to concentrate their fire on civilians and civilian infrastructure. Yaroslav Yanushevich, Kherson Oblast administrative and military governor, claimed the Russian forces were firing incendiary rounds into Kherson, including white phosphorus. Ukrainian forces shelled Russian positions in Novokhovka on the east bank of the Dnipro River. Social media reports claimed that Russian-occupied Rybalcha, located at the mouth of the Dnipro River, was also shelled. There was no change in the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and no update on the status of negotiations for demilitarization. We had previously assessed that it was unlikely that the Kremlin would agree to withdraw from the facility and establish a green zone around the plant. In Zaporizhia, the GSAFU reported that Ukrainian strikes on Russian troop concentrations in Polohi, Vasilivka, and Kamyanka Niprovska wounded more than 130 Russian troops and destroyed military equipment. Another strike in the Vasilivka Romada on December 19th damaged up to eight pieces of military equipment, causing an unknown number of casualties. Social media reports claimed that rockets fired by HIMARS hit Russian positions in Tokmak. The wreckage of a Russian Ka-52 helicopter, Yellow 43, was discovered in Free Zaporizhia. In early December, a Russian Pantsir S-1 system shot down the attack chopper in a friendly fire incident. We didn't report the airframe loss previously because there was no visual evidence. Russian occupation leaders have reportedly started preparations for the forced evacuation of civilians in occupied Vasilivka to Russia. In Melitopol, residents on Russian cellular networks received a text message advising them to prepare to evacuate the city. In Russian-occupied Berdyansk, local officials sent a text message to residents informing them that Ukrainian hryvnias would not be accepted after December 31st. Otherwise, there were only sporadic artillery exchanges between Russian and Ukrainian forces from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv to Malay Sherbaki. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron 
you can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region. In Russian-occupied Crimea, signs and instructions showing the location of bomb shelters started to appear in Simferopol. Russian forces shelled the waterfront of Ochakiv in Mykolaiv. There were no casualties from the strikes, which lasted for six hours. Vitaly Kim, Mykolaiv Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that air defenses shot down a Russian reconnaissance drone and an Orion strike reconnaissance drone. In western and central Ukraine, Russian forces continued punitive strikes on Dnipropetrovsk, striking Marchenets, Chervonogryurivka, and Marivka with over 70 Grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, from the Enerhodar area. Residential neighborhoods and farming infrastructure were targeted, and a gas pipeline was damaged. There were no casualties reported. In north and northeast Ukraine, in Cherniv, the settlements of Karpovichy, Timinovichy, Kostobobriv, and Michalchina Slobova were shelled from across the international border. Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the Hromada of Znobnovhorotska was also shelled by Russian forces from across the international border. The strikes destroyed a farm and its equipment, with significant evidence that cluster munitions were used on the civilian target. On the Russian front, Alexander Bogomos, governor of the Bryansk Federal District in Russia, reported that a Ukrainian drone strike targeted a substation in the Trubchevsk rayon. Bogomaz reported that electrical infrastructure, an administrative building, and a vehicle were damaged in the attack. In the Bilgorod Federal District, Shabikino was shelled again, with federal authorities once again denying local leaders' requests for the civilians in the city to be evacuated. In the Kursk Federal District, the village of Mahontka was shelled, setting at least one building on fire. On the outskirts of Moscow, Mobile air defense units moved from eastern Russia were deployed, likely in response to the December 5th drone strikes on Engels and the Agilevo air bases. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. President Zelensky addressed Ukrainian troops in Bakhmut and presented medals in an unannounced visit to the front, less than 10 kilometers from the fighting and within range of Russian artillery. Zelensky said, quote, Since May, the occupiers have been trying to break our Bakhmut, but time goes by, and Bakhmut is breaking not only the Russian army, but also the Russian mercenaries who come to replace the wasted army of the occupiers. End quote. Oleksiy Reznikov, the Minister of Defense for Ukraine, clarified an earlier statement by Valery Zaluzhny, the commander in chief of the Ukrainian armed forces, stating the need for 300 tanks. 700 infantry fighting vehicles, or IFVs, and 500 howitzers. Reznikov said this was not a request for additional equipment, but the military hardware needed to retake all the territory Russia captured after February 24, 2022. Reznikov added that to retake Crimea and the Minsk II regions of the LNR and DNR would require additional military hardware, and discussions were ongoing. Belarusian forces continue to rotate troops and military equipment, causing concern and making headlines. The amount of equipment involved—23 main battle tanks, or MBTs, six trucks, two troop transports, and fuel trucks—represents less than two full companies of equipment. 
and in our assessment would be lucky to advance five kilometers if they crossed into Ukraine. President Putin's meeting with uncool Lando Calrissian and self-declared leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, appears to have not gone well. Lukashenko reportedly refused to join the special military operation beyond a logistical base and a base of operation for aircraft and missiles, and refused to send mobile hospitals and military medical staff to the DNR. The issue of Belarus's support of the Ukrainian grain initiative came up, and Lukashenko's decision to allow Ukrainian grain to transit through Belarus to Lithuania. Reportedly, Lukashenko told Putin that he would not reverse his decision. After 10 months of war, Ukraine's limited force of multi-role Su-24 aircraft has been almost completely destroyed. Ukraine had up to 16 operational aircraft at the start of the war, with 12 visually documented as destroyed. Ukrainian officials revealed that in June, 61-year-old Mikhailo Matyushenko, who had a 30-year career as a combat pilot and instructor, was shot down during the last days of the occupation of Snake Island, killing one of Ukraine's top trainers and pilots and his co-pilot. Matyushenko retired in 2014 and volunteered to return to service after Russia's wide-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th of this year. The Turkish company Bayrak revealed its Bayrak Tarkizilelma reconnaissance in combat drone's inaugural flight on December 14th. The drone is powered by a turbine engine with a cruise speed of 630 kilometers per hour and a service ceiling of 11 kilometers. It's capable of five hours of flight, giving it a theoretical range of over 3,000 kilometers. Bayrak signed an agreement to build drones in Ukraine in a yet-to-be-built factory days before the start of the war. The Ukrainian military presented its Delta Situational Awareness System to NATO, which the nation started developing in 2016 and upgraded in 2019. The system provides real-time data to field commanders and enables faster and more informed decision-making by integrating multiple data sources following NATO standards and integrating information from military and commercial sources. The United States Department of Defense is expected to announce a new $1.8 billion military aid package for Ukraine, including Patriot missiles and JDAM kits that turn non-precision, quote, gravity bombs delivered by aircraft into precision-guided munitions. You may be thinking, hold up, Ukraine is running out of viable multi-role bombers. And you would be correct. But no matter how tempting it may be to speculate on how the JDAM-modified bombs will be delivered over the long term, we shall refrain. It appears Ukraine, NATO, and DARPA are making additional enhancements to the Microsoft tablet PCs used to fire AGM-88 Harm missiles to support JDAM, as none of the Ukrainian aircraft have the equipment to support the programming and targeting of the bombs. This raises the question... Speaking of unsupported, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Hours after President Zelensky's visit to troops on the front lines in Bakhmut, the Kremlin released a video allegedly showing President Putin visiting troops in the occupied region of Ukraine. Kremlin propagandists continue not to understand, or perhaps not to care, that videos can be geolocated. An analysis showed that Putin was in Rostov-on-Don, in western Russia. Released pictures and videos showed Putin in the same conference room at the southern military district in Russia 
that Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu visited on November 30th. The Kremlin announced that Putin would hold his annual meeting of the board of the Russian Defense Ministry today, only a few weeks after it was announced that he had canceled the annual confab. Okay, but wait, because there's more. Upon learning that Zelensky was in Bakhmut, a tired-looking Yevgeny Prigozhin made a video from Popazna, thank you to geolocation, asking for a face-to-face meeting with the Ukrainian president since they were both in the area. Prigozhin's video also violated operational security, revealing the PMC Wagner firebase in Popazna. You really could not make this up if you wanted to. Prigozhin then went into borderline stalker mode, releasing four more videos related to meeting with Zelensky. Someone needs to learn about boundaries. Zelensky was already gone and heading to the United States to meet with President Joe Biden and address Congress. It is Zelensky's first public trip out of Ukraine since Russia's wide-scale invasion started. Russian propagandists were hard at work, claiming this was proof that Ukraine had lost the war, adding that Zelensky wouldn't return home and would instead seek asylum in the United States. Russian propagandist Starsha Eddy shared his excitement on Telegram about the latest state-of-the-art military hardware delivered to the front to support Russian troops. To heavily paraphrase the actor Dan Aykroyd, having lost every previously issued military vehicle given to the military unit, donors requisitioned a 2009 silver Mitsubishi Pajero SUV, representing the cutting edge of Japanese automotive engineering from the late 1990s. We're living in the future, man. Russian mill blogger Vladlen Tatarsky released video showing the training that recruits of the 1st Guard Tanks Army went through before the start of the Russia-Ukraine war. Watching the video will raise some questions while exposing the requirements of so-called picture reports for the Kremlin. While the video shows elements of basic training used worldwide, such as cleaning barracks, marking the bay, and making bunks, other sections showed a bizarre tea relay with porcelain dishes and learning to play musical instruments. I wonder if the waltzing and needlepoint were edited out for time. Tatarsky also raged against the Kremlin announcement that they would provide free plots of land in Crimea for veterans of the Russia-Ukraine war. Sorry, my bad, my bad. Special military operation. Saying, quote, Political strategists wanted to play with historical allusions. Like ancient Rome rewarded legionary veterans with land plots, we will do the same. Moscow, the third Rome, again. In fact, these people, the Kremlin, don't give a damn about veterans or their real life. Hundreds of thousands of Russian peasants will return to their homes after the war, not near Sevastopol, and not even in the Moscow region. They will return to Ryzan, Tula, Kaliningrad, and Blagoveshensk, Mahachkala and Grozny, Nabarezhnye, Chelny, and Ufa. End quote. He went on to identify the elephant in the room, saying, quote, In order to build a house, even on an allocated plot, and then maintain it, you need work. Only a very naive person can believe that the mobilized or volunteers are keeping jobs. End quote. So there are two recruiting ads that have appeared on Russian state media and spread like wildfire across the internet. You have to watch both of them, because I said so, and you have to. We do link to them in our full situation report, and they are all over social media. The first ad highlights a middle-aged man who works at a factory where his wages are being withheld, and he has to borrow money from his teenage daughter, 
who's saving to buy a smartphone just to pay their basic bills. He listens in to her talking to a friend about how her father went to fight in Ukraine and is now a hero who's paid well. So what's a middle-aged man who works at a factory to do when his employer withholds his wages? Complain to authorities? <laughs> Start a union? Find a new job? No way. Enlist in the Russian military and come back six months later and hand his daughter a brand new in-the-box cell phone he looted from a Ukrainian store. Best of all, they can move to Crimea and build a house, even though there's no factory there and he has no other marketable skills. The second ad shows an older man who is so poor he can't even buy groceries, so he considers selling his lada to afford sausages at the market. His grandson, touched by the man's plight, joins the Russian military so Grandpa can buy a new lada with the death benefits, sorry, wages, and doesn't have to sell his car. After watching the videos, you will probably have the same reaction we had on December 19th when we first saw them, which was absolute disbelief. Like, they can't possibly be real, which is why we didn't share them. But they are real, and have been condemned by some Russian mill bloggers and praised by others. Tatarsky called the ads, quote, disgusting, and labeled them, quote, russophobic, while confirming through geolocation the videos were produced in Moscow using Russian actors. While others are calling for the arrest of the producers, Tatarsky once again called out the elephant in the room, saying, quote, It doesn't matter who filmed this video, he also has a client. So this customer watched the video and accepted it. He said, Yes, guys, everything is fine. I like it. Run. And it is precisely the one who gave this filth, he means the approval, that is the main villain. A Russian man goes to fight not for the motherland, but solely for money. End quote. A quick note here. It does say a lot about Russian Mir and what motivates Russian citizens in the eyes of the Kremlin. The terrifying quote from George Orwell's 1984 immediately comes to mind after watching the two ads. Quote, In principle, the war effort is always planned to keep society on the brink of starvation. The war is waged by the ruling group against its own subjects. And its object is not the victory over either Eurasia or East Asia, but to keep the very structure of society intact. End quote. While rumors swirl that Russia will do another round of mobilization in January or February, which in our assessment will happen, an unnamed United States Department of State official told Reuters that some leaders within the Kremlin are considering the cost of more large-scale offensives in Ukraine, saying, quote, Certainly there are some within Russia who I think would want to pursue new offensives in Ukraine. There are others who have real questions about the capacity for Russia to actually do that. End quote. The official cited Russia's, quote, significant shortages of ammunition, a lack of cohesion in military units, and more than 8,500 pieces of military hardware lost in 10 months. Supporting the growing number of signs that another round of mobilization will start in the first quarter of 2023, President Putin instructed the Kremlin to, quote, form a working group on the interaction of government bodies and organizations on issues of mobilization training and mobilization, as well as social and legal protections of Russian citizens who are taking part in the special military operation, end quote. Validating our position that War Gonzo is not a journalism organization, but de facto mercenaries, Semyon Pegov, remember the incident with the landmine, 
the leader of Wargonzo, will be on the commission. Would you like to be a Russian State Duma deputy? Well, opportunity awaits in Russian-occupied Crimea. On September 3rd, Deputy Alexei Chernyak resigned after the Duma removed his powers. Chairman of the Russian Parliament of Crimea, Vladimir Konstantinov, reported that no one had come forward to fill Chernyak's seat, even to run unopposed. An occupational hazard of moving closer to Putin's orbit is winding up on a wanted list. Former Putin adviser and ally Marat Gelman was added to the Kremlin's wanted list a year after being declared a, quote, foreign agent. Gelman moved to Montenegro in 2014, citing Moscow's increasing restrictions against artists. The Kremlin website does not state the crime he is accused of committing. Military Unit 67606, a battalion of the 127th Reconnaissance Brigade from Crimea, refused to follow orders to continue fighting in Ukraine due to heavy losses and a desire not to, quote, die in vain. The commander faces a, quote, severe reprimand, while surviving unit members remain in Ukraine after signing their refusals. Under Russian law, they face up to 10 years in prison. While some soldiers and units have been turned into examples, including the known execution of at least one battalion commander, most are shipped back to Russia. Wargonzo leader Pegov received the Order of Merit to the Fatherland from President Putin in a Kremlin ceremony. Amazingly, Putin was in the Kremlin while at the same time allegedly visiting troops and getting a military briefing in occupied Ukraine. Weird. Not to be outdone, self-declared leader of the DNR Denis Pushilin also received the Order of Merit to the Fatherland, while our favorite FSB colonel convicted war criminal Kremlin pariah and former Mobik Igor Girkin Strelkov raged on his Telegram channel, saying, quote, Vladimir Putin rewards his heroes right in the Kremlin. Look at these honest, courageous faces and admire the proud posture of the heroes. Who motivated their soldiers and officials to continue the battle better? For me, the answer is obvious. The entire Donetsk People's Republic, which adores its head Denis Pushilin just a little less than Vladimir Putin. End quote. Strelkov, are you jealous? You sound jealous. Now would be a good time to take a cleansing breath. Take a deep breath in and hold. Putin told Russian security employees in a video address that, quote, the situation in the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics in the Kherson and Zaporizhia regions is extremely difficult, end quote. To help solve the extremely difficult situation, the Kremlin is launching a plan to provide better equipment, support the basic welfare of its troops, and properly retrain their forces by sending special entertainers to the front, such as actors, circus performers, and opera singers. While sending entertainers to the front lines isn't new, the Kremlin will tightly regulate the content to assure that it aligns with Russian mir and propaganda standards. Also, none of this will address, quote, Soldiers' concerns on very high casualty rates, poor leadership, pay problems, lack of equipment and ammunition, and lack of clarity about the war's objectives, end quote. Identified by British military intelligence as the real problems crushing Russian morale. The GSAFU reported that the Russian Ministry of Defense is continuing to draw down Mobix, conscripts, ammunition, and its dwindling inventory of military hardware from the Far Eastern districts. 
The continued drawdowns further compromise Russia's ability to engage in a second front if hostilities were to break out in another region. We were told that all was going to plan. What Ministry of Defense doing? In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. A 14-year-old boy from Kherson shared his story of being a prisoner in a Russian torture chamber during the occupation. He said he was held in the basement dungeon with 13 other children, spending 10 days in Russian captivity. He was beaten, deprived of food and water, threatened, and inexplicably released after 10 days of abuse. There's a note here from David, quote, As a conflict reporter, my experience has taught me he was released to warn others of what could happen to them if they defied occupation officials. End quote. In geopolitical news, guess who got in front of a microphone again? Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov somehow didn't threaten to nuke the world or accuse anyone of being a Nazi, but said Ukrainian President Zelensky had a, quote, lack of understanding of the gravity of the movement and concern for his people, end quote. He added that he saw no reason to maintain the same level of diplomacy with the world as before the special military operation and claimed that Russian diplomats live in conditions that, quote, can hardly be called humane, end quote. He defended the war in Ukraine, claiming that the West's reaction to the special military operation proves it was, quote, absolutely necessary, end quote. While Lavrov was complaining about the inhumane conditions of Russian diplomats, masked men recorded themselves throwing sledgehammers over the fence surrounding the Finnish embassy in Moscow, an apparent warning that they'll meet the executioner's blows at the hands of PMC Wagner. There didn't appear to be any damage to the embassy grounds, and I imagine that the Finns were thrilled to receive all the free sledgehammers. Sledgehammers aren't cheap. Ukrainian officials have opened up a criminal investigation into how a live grenade launcher was presented as a gift to Yaroslav Shimchek, the commander-in-chief of the Polish police. When Shimchek tried to move two grenade launchers to his office, one was armed and misfired. The grenade blew out the ceiling in a first-floor room, collapsed rooms on the second floor of police headquarters in Warsaw, and injured Shimchek. The gift was given to him by Serhi Bondar, deputy head of the State Emergency Service of Ukraine, who claims that he was assured that both launchers were inert before bringing them to Warsaw. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation announced that the nation would no longer recognize higher education certifications and diplomas received in Ukraine. While this appears to be a tit-for-tat move, it opens the door for pro-Russian Ukrainians who moved to Russia and accepted passports currently protected from mobilization and conscription because of their education and, quote, vital roles to the economy, to join the special military operation. In economic news, the ruble is inching closer to bear territory, down 17% in 10 days. The exchange rate fell to 72 for one U.S. dollar, the lowest level since April. Crude oil sales are down over 50% since December 5th, destroying demand for the ruble. Western oil prices climbed, 
with WTI crude rising to $78 a barrel and Brent jumping to $82. Russian Ural's crude plummeted due to skyrocketing inventory, falling 9.5% to $54 a barrel. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market rose again due to severe weather disrupting distribution, reaching $2.25 a gallon, or $0.60 a litre. Dutch TTF natural gas futures continued their downward trend, with the price falling to €98 per megawatt-hour for January 2023 delivery and €100 for February. Chicago SRW wheat futures climbed $0.10, trading at $7.57 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.